This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. For he that takes away from God's essence or attributes and still thinks he believes in God because he has left him his name and titles does just as bad as those who set up an image and worship that instead of God. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon was preached by Richard Baxter. We're going back to the 1600s in England. Joel, we talk a lot on this show about people who, there's just not enough time to cover their entire life. And Richard Baxter is definitely one of these people. I wasn't expecting him to be. I guess I hadn't really heard a lot of who he was. And so I just assumed he'd have a couple bullet points and it would be, you know, quick and easy to talk about him, but he's not. And he's actually a very hard to describe guy. And what I mean by that is like, I don't really know. Usually you can say, you know, Charles Furchin was a passionate preacher. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was fearless, but I don't really know what word you could attach to Baxter. For example, he wrote over 200 books, devotionals. Uh, He wrote a bunch of articles, but he never really aspired to be more than just a pastor to people out in the field, very, very small church Mm. in a pretty small town. He just was comfortable right there. Yeah. He got involved in some of the biggest controversies, very divisive time to be alive, but he himself, he believed he was a peacemaker. But I'll let you listen to this episode and decide if you think he's a peacemaker. Yeah, like what you said about him just wanting to be a pastor. Like, that's that's something that I saw several points in his life where, like, the dude... He's just chill. Like he doesn't yeah. have a he doesn't have a huge agenda. He just wants to minister to the people. But what's funny is like people, and you'll see you, people will offer him something. He'll go, right. "Oh, I no, I don't want that." And then later on, he's like, "I really regret not doing that." It's like, <laughs> well, then why didn't you do it? I can strangely relate with that. <laughs> so in this sermon, we're going to listen to. He talks about denying oneself, and I think you you can kind of see it play out in his sure. life. Sure. Yeah, Richard Baxter. Like I said, mid 1600s. He was born in 1615. Would die in 1691. And we're again in England. He spent most of his life in England. He comes from a pretty poor family, not a lot of money. He was pretty poor growing up, and he didn't get a great education until he was able to get into a school run by John Owen. John Owen, who, uh, he's a famous Puritan, and we actually have an episode on him in the works, too, that we're excited for. But he helped get Baxter going. He helped get Baxter a great education and, and got him real interested in things of theology. When Richard Baxter uh, came to the end of his education with John Owen at John Owen's school, uh, he's looking for places to further his education, and John Owen told Baxter that he shouldn't go to Oxford. And I'm not entirely sure why. I kind of get the idea that uh, maybe John Owen didn't think he was quite cut out for Oxford, but due to that advice, he he didn't go to Oxford. He continued to further his education through other means, but he always, in retrospect, looks back at his life and kind of really regrets not going to Oxford. Yeah, Joel, that's one of those regrets we mentioned earlier. We, oh, I was going to do this, and then I didn't, and now I wish I had. That's kind of a lot of his story. In the 1640s, the English Civil War broke out. And I'm going to just stop, put a little giant asterisk here. Uh, Joel and I are from America. And I, I think I speak for both Joel and myself when I say that, if you couldn't tell by our accents, uh, but I think I speak for both of us when I say, 
Don't understand the single English Civil War? It's a confusing war. I we've, don't. A lot of our <laughs> speakers come from this era around the English Civil War, yeah. and we've dived into portions of it at a time, but it is still a very confusing war for us in the 21st century in America. And, and I know. I've even watched like YouTube videos like, we'll explain the English Civil War in five minutes or less, and then you watch it, and you're like, I still don't know what happened <laughs> in that. But So at some point, we're going to do some better research so we can explain this to you better, but the main point being the war broke out and he richard baxter was like i condemn both sides i i don't like either of the two sides fighting which made both sides hate him you know even worse than being on one side was being against both of them so they basically kicked him out of his church and told him to set up shop in a different town he ends up having uh many famous ministers spend time in the new church that he starts out um it was considered a safe place for fugitives one particularly famous man was John Bunyan, and we did a sermon on him a few episodes back, uh, and he, very famous guy at the time. He would actually see several battles. He would kind of be a chaplain to the soldiers during that time. He was asked by Oliver Cromwell, and I do not know much about it, but I know he was one of the big dogs of that Civil War, um, to get a position, but... Richard Baxter rejected it, said, I don't want to do that. So eventually he was brought to London to settle the, quote, fundamentals of religion, end quote, in London. But I don't know that they ever did. But he gets sick in the middle of this. He goes back home uh, to his home church, and that's when he ends up writing one of his most famous books, Saints Everlasting, The Saints Everlasting Rest. And this ends up being one of the most read books in the 1600s. And that's during a time when people are reading a lot of books. Yeah, Richard Baxter is, is also one of these guys that he got in a lot of debates. He got in a lot of, I don't want to say arguments, but arguments a lot of the time too. And tell me if you know somebody like this. You know, someone who I would describe Richard Baxter as someone who is sensitive to their conscience, you know, takes takes their conscience seriously and rarely thinks that other people are doing things the way they really should be doing or for the right reasons, right? And he makes that known. So he's he's always kind of calling out people saying, I don't think you're doing this for the right reasons, or I don't think this is the way that that should be happening. And it leads to a lot of conversations and debates. And I, I definitely know at least one or two guys in my uh, in my life that totally meet that description. There's, th there's this one story about Richard Baxter where he was having a debate with a guy about baptism and the ideas of that day, you know, around baptism. And they engaged in this debate. And the debate lasted from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And there ended up being 3,000 people that came and were just on looking, like, like really invested in this conversation these two people were having. And so much so that the sheriffs had to come and get involved to settle down the crowds because the crowds were getting so into it and were getting so lively. That's the type of person that Richard Baxter was. He's the type of person whose, whose opinions are so interesting to listen to that it can get 3,000 people riled up all of a sudden, right? And not necessarily, you know, he's he's not coming at people with anger, swinging hammers. This guy that he was having this debate with, I mean, years down the road, they would kind of collaborate on some pamphlets and stuff like that, work together a little bit and kind of endorse each other's work. So it's, it's kind of neat to see his interaction with the people that he doesn't always agree with a lot of the time. Something else, and you have to understand about Baxter, the the way he lived his life, his style of church leadership and pastoral work would end up being honestly the blueprint for the way churches and pastors would run from that point on. He kind of put out a lot of the ideas and people would go back and go, let's do it like Baxter did it. And one thing that he felt very strongly about was home visits. 
He thought this was just an incredibly neglected part of ministry. He once said that he felt half an hour of just one-on-one time with a person or family would do more good for that person's spiritual walk than 10 years of preaching behind the pulpit would do for them. His church was in a rural part of the country, completely they ended up completely outgrowing the church. They had to keep renovating and remodeling to make more room for the attendance. When he when he got to that town, it was a town of 800 families and just a couple, maybe, maybe just a couple were going part-time. When he ended up leaving, there were 600 full-time attendees and but he had this weird line. It's kind of a classic Baxter almost, where at the end of it, he goes, yeah, I, you know, 600 people come, but I, I, I would be surprised if even 12 of them were really sincere in their faith. Hmm. And it's just, he has such an interesting just outlook on things. I, he's he's unique. Yeah. Uh, the English Civil War, you know, we, we've talked about the English Civil War a little bit in that intro. We know that he, again, didn't side with either side. Uh, and it was kind of this turning point in his ministry where you, you get known for something one way or another, right? And uh, after the war, he really wanted to get people back together. He saw this devastation that the war had caused and the disunity. And that's a big deal for him is this this unity being broken over the war. So he wanted to bring people back together. And he got pretty well known for it and, and was doing an all right job at it. The Church of England asked him to become a bishop, but he refused, and that made that made a lot of people really angry, and he ended up getting his preaching license, as it and, were. And it wasn't really a license, but basically he was told, you okay. can't preach anymore. Right. That, if you had a preacher's license, imagine that getting revoked. Preaching license in air quotes. There you go. Yeah. He just ended up on the, on the wrong side of law enforcement. He ended up on the wrong side of, of people in power. And so he was getting shut down at events a long time. And again, he he turned down a bishop because he wanted to just keep preaching the way he wanted to yeah, keep preaching to the people he wanted to preach to. a small church and he wanted to just kind of keep going where he thought God was using him. But right. I guess, you know, people said we have bigger plans for you. And when he said no. Yeah. People didn't like that. And so now he's getting fined for, you know, miscellaneous stuff. His events are getting shut down by the authorities. There's a, a few different occasions where his books would be confiscated. And he just took all of this and kind of ran with it in stride. You know, when he preached, he said that he never felt sure if he would be able to preach again. And he said he tried to preach every sermon as if it was his last. And I love this quote here where he says that he felt like he was a dying man giving truth to dying men. Right. So at, at any moment, like he, he's he's ready to leave this world. He's he's just doing what he feels called to do in the time that he has left to help other people that are coming towards the end of their time they have left. Right. This week on the Truce podcast, I talk with Caitlin Shass, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss how evangelicalism has gotten tangled up in nationalism. We end up in positions where we take passages intended for Israel and apply them to America in ways that are not not good uh, exegesis. But also, I think then we end up in a position where we have to defend, we have to baptize the whole, especially early history of our country, because if it was founded on Christian values and God has to be defended and Christian values have to be defended, then we end up in a position where we either have to deny some of the atrocities very early in our country's history, or we have to say that those are Christian values. We have an ability in a unique system in which we have some democratic involvement in the in the running of our country to hold it to account to what God says countries should be. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.
In the end of his life, he'd sometimes preach, uh, but the law would hound him, and it, he, he could never be in one place preaching for very long, so maybe a guest speaker, but never somebody you could have around for quite a long time. Uh, he could never get his own church again. But the king at that time would die, and a new one came to power. And this last one, he, he let him off the hook, basically. He kind of forgave him, pardoned him of pretty much everything that was causing the trouble. And this, this new king was trying to end wars and divisions and trying to get England past all of this stuff going on. And so Baxter was one of the people that got let off. Now, he had at one point spent over, you know, he, in, in that time, he had spent 18 months in prison over those course of those years. He had had a rough time. And Baxter, there's one kind of problem we have to bring up with Baxter, and that is that he, he chose to be a moderate. And I think he chose it because he saw how the extreme way of life that he had seen and the other people had led to the English Civil War and had all these bad consequences. So he wanted to moderate. He wanted to kind of pull back. And he kind of set down a road. The problem is people taking that path that he went down ended up, people say, basically that he put the seeds down that would lead to the Enlightenment, would lead to ecumenicalism, would lead to all these bad things that would happen later on. And much like the Salem witch trials, if you want to look at it this way, that we talked about, Joel and I, in our Revive Thoughts deep dive, much like the Salem witch trials kind of cooled down the American spirit towards God, you could say that the English Civil War kind of cooled off the passions of the people in England and that they started to kind of go down a different road, uh, leaving that path. And, and Richard Baxter, having lived through that, he became one of those people who was kind of like, let's take this more moderate road. And other people jumped on that road and said, well, let's go even further and further until they kind of walked away from from God, in a sense. But I think for Baxter, he just had seen the extremeness of everything, and he was trying to find a more God-centered path that would bring about more of that, you know, that peaceful fruit of righteousness, either the fruit of peace and the fruit of being a peacemaker. He was really determined to just bring people together in unity in a way that would reflect God, because he had seen just so much of the disunity in his life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and we talk about on the show all the time that we have this ability to have that hindsight 2020 right where we yeah. can look at the effects that this person had in the following decades centuries right and they don't know any of that at the time they're making decisions based on their environment and baxter went through a, a terrible civil war and saw terrible things and he made decisions on that and you know could did he realize that his decisions would lead to different movements down the road maybe we'll never know uh, what his heart is and what he desired for these things. It's really easy to look back on somebody and to judge them and say, see, if he had just not done that, right. we wouldn't end up here. But, you know, we have no idea. He, I imagine his intentions for God were good. He seemed like he loved the Lord and loved evangelizing and preaching. And I just, I think it's very easy to look back and go, see, that guy's sure. wrong. And I'm sure that a hundred years from now, if we're all still here, there'll be people looking back and going, see, if those 21st century Christians in America hadn't done this, this, right. and this. 100%. Uh, this sermon that we're about to listen to from Baxter, he spends it talking about the things that we have to give up when we follow God, right? Too often people want to have Christ, but with none of the consequences. And he talks about how not wanting to give things up kind of really comes across as a sign of not being saved, right? Because as he'll say in this sermon, it makes sense, right? If you're a Christian, that you'd want to give yourself up to Christ. I will now show you some of the reasons that self-denial is necessary. 
I will prove it to you that it is no small thing and not the lofty standard of a few of the saints. No, it is a thing that all must have that will be saved. It is the essence of holiness itself. It is as impossible to separate holiness from self-denial as separating living from life. And if you think it strange that salvation should be dependent on such a hard duty and that no man can be a true disciple that does not deny himself even given his life when God requires it, then I will show it to you. Reason 1. Until a man denies himself, he denies God and does not believe in him. He does not love him and take him to be his God. And I hope you will grant that no man can be saved that doesn't believe in God or love him or takes him for his God. He that will deny God and yet think to be saved must think to be saved in spite of God. The first article of our faith and of our baptismal Christian covenant is to believe in God the Father and take him for our God and give up of ourselves to be his people. But this no man can do without self-denial. For by all that I have said in the description of it, you may see that selfishness is contrary to God and would rob him of all his higher qualities, and God would be no God. Self is the God of wicked men, or the world's great idol, and that the inordinate love of pleasure, profits, and honor in Trinity is all but this self-love in unity, and that in the malicious Trinity of God, enemies, the flesh is the first and foundation, the world the second, and the devil the third. Every man is an idolater so far as he is selfish. God is not just a name, for he that takes away from God's essence or attributes and still thinks he believes in God because he has left him his name and titles, does just as bad as those who set up an image and worship that instead of God, or that worship the sun or moon as gods, because they somewhat represent his glory. For surely a name has as little substance as an image. Much less, can you say it has more than the sun? Now selfish, ungodly men will rob God and give his honor and desires to themselves. But they will try to put off with empty titles. They call him their God, but will not have him for their end, their portion, and their joy, and won't give him the strongest love of their hearts. They will not take him as their absolute owner. They won't devote themselves and all they have to him, and stand with a willing mind as his servant. They will not take him for their sovereign, and be ruled by him, and they won't deny themselves for him or seek his honor and interest above their own. They call him their father, but deny him his honor. They call him their master, but do not fear him. Malachi one six. They don't depend on his hand and don't live by his law and for his glory. Therefore, they do not take him for their God, and can you expect that God should save those that deny him and would dethrone him? Those are his very enemies. Reason 2. Yes, more than this, God will not save those that make themselves their own gods and who have rejected him. But all these unsanctified selfish men make themselves their own gods. For in all the ten points before mentioned, they take to themselves 
the desires of God. 1. They do everything for themselves. 2. They use all creatures for themselves. Even God himself is recognized as only for themselves. 3. They love their present life and prosperity better than God. 4. They would be there themselves and live as themselves and not as those that are not like them. 5. They would have the creatures to be theirs and use them as their own and not as God's. 6. They must care for themselves and look out for themselves and dare not trust themselves wholly upon God. 7. They would use things for themselves and their own conditions and never for anyone else. 8. They would rule themselves and be away from the laws and government of God. 9. They would be the rulers of all others and have all men do their wills. 10. And they would be honored and admired by all and have praise ascribed to them. And if all this does not set themselves up as gods or idols in the world, I don't know what does. Certainly God is so far from having a thought or saving such vile idolaters who stay in this condition that they are the principal objects of his high displeasure and the most deserving marks for his justice to shoot at. And he is engaging in pulling them down and treading them into hell. Why should God stand by and see a company of rebellious sinners sit down in his throne, or try to usurp his sovereignty and divine rules? Would he leave them alone, and then advance them to his glory? No, he is resolved that he that humbles himself will be exalted, and he that exalts himself will be brought low. And what higher self-exaltation can there be than to make ourselves as our own gods? And therefore, who will be brought lower than this? Reason 3. No man can be a Christian that doesn't take Christ for his Lord and Savior, and no man without this self-denial can take Christ for his Lord and Savior. Therefore, no man without self-denial can be a Christian and be saved. He who makes himself his end cannot follow Christ, for Christ is a way to the Father and not to carnality. No, the business that Christ came into the world to do was to pull down and subdue this selfishness. Moreover, whoever takes Christ for his Savior must know from what it is that Christ must save him. And that is most importantly for oneself. And no man can take Christ for his Savior that renounces not self-confidence and is not willing to be saved from the idolatry of self-exaltation. No man can take Christ for his master or teacher that doesn't come into his school as a little child, renouncing the guidance of the carnal self. There is no antichrist or false Christ, that is, in the world, that opposes Christ more and resists him in all the parts of his power than our carnal selves. It is this that will not stoop to his righteousness or to his guidance. Self is the false Christ or Savior of the world and its false God. And therefore, 
can be no salvation where self is not denied and taken down first. Reason 4. He who doesn't believe in the Holy Ghost and won't take him for a sanctifier cannot be a true Christian or be saved. But no man without this self-denial believes in the Holy Ghost and takes him for a sanctifier. Therefore, without this self-denial, no man can be a true Christian or be saved. The very nature of sanctification consists in turning a man from himself to God. It destroys selfishness and devotes the soul to God by Christ. So it is beyond doubt that none but the self-denying are sanctified, but they truly take the Holy Ghost for their sanctifier and truly believe in Him. So far as men are in love with the disease, it is certain they will not see the doctor. Reason 5. No man is a true Christian and in a state of salvation that denies, renounces, or rejects the Word of God. But all men that don't have self-denial, that hear the Word of God, do renounce, deny it, or reject it. Therefore, no man without self-denial is a true Christian or can be saved. In the Scriptures, we have eternal life. It's them that make us wise to salvation. The man that will be blessed must meditate in them day and night. Psalm 1.3 And it's not the hearers but the doers of them that are blessed. But nothing is more clear than the voice of Scripture calls out loud on all men to deny themselves, and that the scope of it is to tear down self and set up God in Jesus Christ. It is the very point and meaning of it from end to end to take down self and lower men in their own eyes and bring them home to God from whom they are in revolt. Reason 6. No man can be a Christian or be saved without saving grace, but no man without self-denial has saving grace. For it is the nature of every grace to carry man from himself to God by Christ. It is the work of godly sorrow to humble the proud man and break the heart of carnal self. It is the work of faith for a self-denying soul to pass out for hope and life to Christ. It is a work of love to carry us quite above ourselves to that infinite goodness which we love. It is the nature of holy fear to confess our guilt and insufficiency and to suspect ourselves and dread the fruit of our own ways. Confidence does bottom us before God, and hope itself does imply a despairing in ourselves. Thankfulness does pay homage to Him that has saved us from ourselves, and every grace has self-denial as half its very life or soul. So it is certain that no man has any more grace than he has self-denial. Reason 7. They who reject the ministry and the fruit of all the works of God are not true Christians and are not saved. For the use of of the ministry is to call home sinners from themselves to God. The use of every ordinance of God is to get or keep down carnal self and exalt the Lord. Confession is nothing but self-abasing, and he must confess that will have the faithful and just God forgive him. For he that covers his sin will not prosper. 1 John 1.9 Proverbs 28.13 
Prayer is a confession of our own emptiness, insufficiency, and unworthiness, and of flying from ourselves to help one another. In baptism, we come as condemned prisoners for a pardon, as it were, with ropes about our necks, and strip ourselves of the rags of our filthiness, that by the blood of the Lamb we may be washed from our blood and our sins, may be buried into the depths of the sea. In the Lord's Supper, we renew the same covenant and received the same renewed pardon, and still fly from ourselves to Christ for life, and renounce our carnal selves by solemn covenant as a people coming home to God, so that never was any ordinance of God effectual and saving on the soul of any, more so than when it brought them to self-denial. Reason 8. He that doesn't work sincerely and cannot go one step into the way of life is no true Christian. But this is a case of all that do not have self-denial. For self is a principle, rule and end. And he that has either a false principle, rule or end, cannot be sincere in any of the means, much less when he is out of all of these. A selfish man is seeking himself in his very religion and is serving himself when he seems to be serving God. And indeed, he does not do any service sincerely for God because he won't make God his end. And so he isn't accepted. Reason 9. No man is a true Christian or cannot or can be saved that stays in the depths of his natural misery, still in his lapsed state. But all men who stay in their natural selfishness do not change, for it is self that they are beholden to and must be saved from it. Reason 10. No man can be a true Christian and be saved that is not a member of the Holy Church and the communion of saints. But you will only find the self-denying there, for every true member of the church has a public spirit, preferring the church's interest to their own and suffering with fellow members in their suffering and having care of one another. 1 Corinthians 12. But the self-seeking, unsanctified person is a stranger to this way of life. Reason number 11. He that is led by the greatest enemy of God and his own soul is not a true Christian. But so is every man that has not learned to deny himself. For self is the greatest enemy of God and us. If you could escape your own hands, then you would be out of danger. All the devils in hell cannot destroy you if you would not be your own destroyer first. Reason 12. Lastly, it is a plain contradiction to be saved without self-denial. For as itself that we must be saved from, both as our end and means, and is our greatest enemy. So to stay in self is still to be lost and miserable, and therefore you are not saved. So the case is as plain as a case can be that no man can be a true Christian or a disciple of Christ without self-denial, and consequently, none without it can be saved. The reason number three that he says is uh, for self-denial, being a part of salvation. No man can be a Christian that doesn't take Christ for his Lord and Savior. And no man without the self-denial can take Christ 
for his Lord and Savior. And that sounds almost like he's just saying the same thing twice, but think about it truly. Could you say, just imagine you're at work. I, uh, my boss told me to do these different things. Did you do them? Nah, and I don't plan to get to them. How long are you going to be employed? You're going to be fired on the spot. Anybody hearing that just goes, what a, what a schmuck, right? Well, how can you say that God is my Lord and Savior? I really love him. I do anything God tells me to do. I, my heart is fully his. I'm, de- I'm dedicated to God. Well, do you do what he tells you in the Bible? Like deny mm-hmm. yourself, pick up your cross? Uh, no, I don't do that. I, I kind of live my own thing. But God is great Sunday morning for about five minutes. Yeah, it's not going to be very realistic. And I think a lot of, I don't know, I I am someone who came from a Christian home, came from several Christian generations, you know, grandparents that were Christians. Yeah. And I do feel like it's kind of slightly, I don't know, when you're raised in a Christian environment, when it's all you know, I feel like there is a little bit of danger to becoming numb to the monotony of Christian life, as opposed to someone who's a first generation Christian, right? Yeah. Who came to know the Lord in college or something like that, where they see the light in darkness. There's that difference to them. I think there's a wisdom in somebody who came later to Christ. Sure. They know, they really know what life right. without God is like. Right. But I mean, this is something that I feel like I struggle with too. Like, the, does my life really reflect this? You know, I, 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 we had a Bible study group that just went through James and James hammers on that hard too as well as like, if your faith is real, yeah. it will result in real things that people notice that that are tangible, that there, there are works, there are things that as are a result of your faith being real. Yeah. And that needs to be something we take seriously. Yeah, I know this isn't from the sermon, but you put me in James. Abraham, he brings up Abraham and Rahab. And I love it because as, the, as the, the people for the works, and Abraham is the father of the faith, but he wouldn't have been the father of the faith if he hadn't put Isaac on the altar. And Rahab mm. is not the father of the faith. She's the prostitute, you know, and mm. she had a bad job. Uh, she betrayed her country. She lied. And yet she's considered faithful. Yeah because her heart was in the right place. She was doing actions with her heart set on the right reasons. And so God could use her. And I back coming back to the sermon, you know, you may not get self-denial perfectly. You may not live perfectly, but your heart's in the right place and you're doing something. And I think God's going to move in your life a lot more than if you go, well, I'm going to wait till I have the perfect theology or I'm going to wait till everything's sure. just right. And then I'm going to move. I think God's not going to bless that second person as much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Vincent Silva. He is a native from southern New Mexico, and he now lives with his wife for almost 37 years and five children in Boise, Idaho. He's retired from the New Mexico public schools and also retired from the Air Force. He enjoys playing guitar and has a passion for God's word and witnesses every chance he gets. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, we hope that you will share it, tell other people about it, and tell them what we are doing here at Revive Thoughts, trying to bring history's greatest sermons back to life. We Joel and I cannot do this if you are not telling others about the show. We have seen the show continue to grow, and it, it really is because of you sharing links on social medias and Reddit and Facebook and all these different places that you guys do. And it is because you are telling your friends, your family members, your pastors, the people in your life about this show, even just texting it to them or messaging it to them or just dropping it as one of your favorite shows. It makes a difference. I promise you that this show is growing and it really is thanks to you. And we, we just appreciate it and hope that you will continue to do that for us. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.
This week on The Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.